Father, we pray holy, holy, holy. We come to you as a holy God, but not in our own merit, not in our own favor, not in anything we bring. But Lord, we come to you through the finished work of Jesus Christ and we cry out holy, holy, holy. God, as we hear from your word today, we ask that you would uh, give us hearts to listen. Would you give us minds that we can understand? But then God, would you change us today? As we consider who you are and what you've done, as we look at this message called Broken by the Glory, as we look at your servant Isaiah and what you did in his life, Father, would you stir in us? Would you bring us to the place that you brought him to see you on the throne, see you as awesome, God? Would you change us, God, from the inside out? Would you do that work for your fame? Would you do it for your honor? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. You may take your seats. And as you're doing that, that text was found in Isaiah chapter 6, if you haven't already found it. And that's where we'll be looking today in a message entitled, Broken by His Glory. Couple times within the year in my preaching calendar, I have a, a week that's not filled in with a series. It's a, a week that the elders can, we can talk about what do we want to put in this place. And it's a one off message, as it were. And next week we'll start into an Easter series. But um, this is a passage the Lord has been placing on my heart. Um, it's something I've been wrestling through. As I take a look at who God is and what He has done and uh, the the needs that I have to see God like Isaiah saw God and what difference did it make for him? And yet I have the opportunity to be the pastor of an amazing church and it's filled with people who are desiring to grow and learning and it's filled with people who are struggling and hurting and it's, hurt, it's filled with some people who are not walking the way that they ought to walk and I believe this text gives us a footprint. It gives us a, a blueprint on how we ought to live. And so as I preach this message today, you need to know for the last number of weeks, I've been preaching it to myself. And, and so I'm going to preach it to you today. It's about seeing the Lord. And then it's about seeing what do we do when we see the Lord. A.W. Tozer said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. 
And even in this text, we're going to see the presence of the Lord before Isaiah and what it does to him. The shorter catechism, you hear me quote from it every once in a while, and you probably wonder, if, is there really such a thing as the shorter catechism? Well, this is it. It's the shorter catechism. The longer catechism has a lot more pages, and there's none that you can color, so it's not much fun for me. So. But this one is um, the shorter catechism. It says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our purpose statement of our church says to glorify God through the fulfillment of the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. Why are we here? We're here to glorify God. You're not here because it's a checklist of things you wanted to get done this weekend and go to church was one of them. We meet together to glorify God. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so that's the goal. That's what we're striving for, that in our lives, we would glorify our God. Well, how does that happen? And what does it look like? And how did it happen in Isaiah's life? And what did it look like? So first thing we want to see is you must see his glory. Before you'll ever glorify God with your life and living out for his fame, you need to see his glory. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the year King Uzziah died, what's the significance of that? Is there any real significance to it? Um, I don't necessarily think it's a huge point other than as a marker in history as to when this happened. Um, Uzziah was the king, and uh, by and large, he was a good king. He didn't finish well, but most of his life he did well. Um, and he dies. And it's in this year, the year that he died, that Isaiah has this vision. And so is it any more, any less than that? The Bible doesn't say, so I'm not going to speculate it's more. It could be that he had a sensitivity going on. There was a lots of change that was happening, and he was sensitive to what was going on, and, and the Lord used that in his life. Don't really know. I know that it was a benchmark as to when it happened, because it happened in the year that King Uzziah died. But next point is, what happened? Well, Isaiah has a vision it says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah has a vision that's going to change his life. And if we have that vision, it will change our lives as well. Our vision may not be exactly like his. We might learn through his vision, but he has a vision that changes his life. And so before we get to that, I want to just take a moment and, and talk about the way God speaks to us. What are the different ways that God reveals himself to people, specifically to you? Uh, the first way God does it is through creation. God reveals himself through creation. Now you need to get out. If you live in Markham or you live in Scarborough or you need to get in your car sometime and at nighttime especially drive 50 miles north of here where it's dark on a clear night and look up into the sky and see God's handiwork. Where we live, we look up into the sky at night and we see the glow of the lights from Shopper's Drug Mart, okay? You want to see the glory of God, you see it in his creation. 
need to go and drive through Muskoka and see the way God has made and see the lakes and see his handiwork. In Psalm uh, 833 and 4, it says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And you get out there and you see the expanse of God and his creation and all that he has made. And you're like, who am I that God would care about me? Because God reveals himself to us through his creation. God reveals himself to us through our conscience. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Every man in his heart knows there is a God. They deny it, they push it aside, but God has built it in us. And through our conscience, God reveals himself to us. Now there's a big, big, big watch out in that one. Because if you act inappropriately, you love sin, you get involved in something, you do something long enough, your conscience stops bothering you. So just because your conscience doesn't say something doesn't mean it's right. Well, my conscience didn't bother me when I did that. Well, that doesn't mean it's right. That just means your conscience has been seared. But our conscience is a way that God reveals himself. And he does it through our conscience. Another way that God reveals himself, most obvious to us, is through his word. And God has given us the entire word so that we could know him. All of it from Genesis to Revelation. He's given. You've got it in your hand. There's a copy in front of you. If you don't have one, go to guest reception after the service. They will give you one. God has given us his word and that's the way he's revealed himself to us. God has revealed himself through us not only through his word but through his son. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And in that verse, Jesus Christ is called the word, but God revealed himself through his son. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And so God speaks to us through creation, through conscience, through the word, through his son. God speaks to us through one another. Consider how you can spur one another on to love and good deeds. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, it says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And so God uses us in the church to reveal himself, his working, his faithfulness to each other. And then God reveals himself through dreams and visions. God reveals himself through dreams and visions. God did it with Joseph in the book of Genesis. God did it with Joseph in the New Testament when he found out that Mary was pregnant. And God does it here in Isaiah's life and he reveals through dreams and visions. So let me tell you a few things about that. The first thing that I would say is that God does work that way. And God can work that way. And there were lots of people that God did that with, um, even in the Bible. But when he does it for you, if you think you've had a vision from the Lord, you think you've had a dream, 
test, test, test. Make sure that it's from the Lord. Make sure that it's from God. The thing that God tells you to do will be supported from his word. He's not going to tell you to go out and do something that his word doesn't tell you to do. People come into my office and tell me the craziest things that God's given them a vision for. Well, God gave me a vision for another woman other than my wife. No, he didn't. Sin gave you that vision. Your own hormones gave you that vision. I don't know where it came from other than the pit of hell, but it didn't come from God. And so stop blaming God for what you want in your life. That's not what he has for you. Test. Test the vision. Test it. But God works through visions. And God gave Isaiah a vision. And it changed him. It changed him. Look again at verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. When he died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord, and he was sitting on a throne. God's not sitting in a chair. God's sitting on a throne because God is a ruler. He is a sovereign. Kings sit on thrones because they rule. And he's sitting. God's not running around going, oh no, what's happening? Oh no, what's happening? He's seated on a throne because he's got it under control. And Isaiah looks up in the year King Uzziah died. And if it's in the context of, oh no, what's happening in our nation? It's like, God's got this. And you look at our world and you look at the changes that are happening. You see the wheels falling off. And hey, church, God's got this. He's on his throne. He's seated on his throne. The text goes on. What we see in the, through the text that when God's seated on his throne, speaking of his authority, God, God revealed himself in visions to other people. And quite often as he did, it became about the throne or that was part of it. With Job, that was part of it. With David, that was part of it. With the sons of Korah, the throne was part of it. With Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel seated on a throne. The apostle John saw God's throne in the book of Revelation. In fact, the book of Revelation may as well be called the book of God's throne because God's throne is specifically mentioned 35 times. God sits on his throne because he is in charge. He is in control. When Isaiah saw the Lord, didn't see him scurrying around, filled with anxiety, he saw him seated, seated on the throne. The bottom line of atheism and the bottom line of materialism is there is no throne. There is no throne. The bottom line of humanism is I'm on the throne. But when Isaiah saw the Lord, he saw God seated on the throne. The text says he's high and he's lifted up. He occupies the superior position. And then it says the train of his robe filled the temple. The kings of that time would wear robes with long trains after them. Wearing a long train meant I am important enough that I don't have to work. And I am a person of honor and dignity and others serve me and wait upon me. That's what the train meant. And so when a king in that day would walk around with his robe on, it said, I am important. I don't have to work. People serve me. 
People wait upon me. How puny that thinking would have been for the king who just died compared to almighty God who sits on the throne. He doesn't have to work. We're called to serve him. train of his robe filled the temple. The best picture I think we would have today of this idea of a train and being served would be a bride in a wedding. And uh, every time we have a wedding in this church, I always ask the question of the bride, is there a train as part of your dress? And when it is, it's like, okay, so now I've got uh, something I need to communicate to the maid of honor. Because the maid of honor's job is to take care of the bride, is to serve her. And so I always tell them, I say, now, don't you worry if they come up to here or up further onto the platform and, and that dress needs to be adjusted, that's your job. Your job is to adjust that. That's what you do. I'm not going to go, what are you doing? Your job is to serve the bride. And that's probably the best picture we have of it today. But this isn't the bride coming to the front in the church. This is God seated on his throne. He's high and he's lifted up and his train fills the temple. You need to see God in his glory. And how much time have you spent in the last day or week or month or year of your life examining who God is in his glory Second thing we want to see is you must feel the weight of his glory. Not only do you have to see his glory, you have to feel the weight of his glory. Look, look what it says in verses 2 and 3. It says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another. And he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, the whole earth is filled with his glory. The Hebrew word for glory is the weight of something. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so Isaiah's there and he sees these angels flying back and forth and it says with two of the wings they covered their face and with two of their wings they covered their feet and with two they flew. What a great picture of they won't even look at God, their sense of adoration of who he is. They take two wings and they cover their face. Because God is holy. God is on the throne. And with two, they cover their feet. And that speaks of modesty and submission, of coming under, of surrender. And with two, they fly. Picture of serving and the cheerful performance of their duties before the Lord. And Isaiah watches and he sees these angels. And he feels the weight of what he's seeing. Not only that, it says, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Yeah, I wonder how they said it. I think the next verse kind of gives us a clue. It could have been, holy, holy, holy. Or it could have been, holy, holy, holy. I think it's more like that because the next verse starts stuff shaking and thundering and going on in this vision of his. It's not some passive thing about their view of who God is and what he had done. Like they're all in for their Lord. Three times they say this. I don't really believe that's a picture towards the Trinity. Some people have said that. Eh, maybe, maybe not. We'll find out when we get to heaven. 
But here's what I know. In the Hebrew language, when you repeated something, you repeated it for emphasis. You repeated it so it stuck. And so they just didn't fly around going, holy is the Lord. Or holy, holy is the Lord. Like they're full on out there in heaven crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Do you look at God like that? Do you consider God in all that he's done and his holiness? The word means to be set apart. It means you're so far from me. So far from us. So far from us. So far from us, God, you are. You are set apart, God. You are set apart. You are set apart. How about this? Awesome. Awesome. Awesome is the Lord of hosts. I'm on a little bit of a project to redeem that word in the church. I don't think we should use that word other than talking about God. I think it's a word that describes a holy God who is awesome. I watch the Toronto Maple Leafs play hockey sometimes and you see a guy make a great move and a goal and somebody go, that was awesome. No, it wasn't. God is awesome. That was just a nice play. I want to redeem that word. You don't have to feel the same way I feel about that. I don't have a Bible verse for that specific word. I just think that's a word we should reserve for the Lord because he is awesome. That other stuff might be neat. It might be cute. It might be nice, but it ain't awesome. God is awesome. They cry out, holy. That's another word we should redeem. Again, hockey illustration. I don't know the name of the guy who's the announcer. I don't believe he's a Christian, so I'm not judging him on that basis. But, you know, a great place like, holy Mackinac. Where does that come from? I don't even know where Mackinac is, but it ain't holy. <laughs> but we do it. Holy cow. Holy smoke. Where, where do these things come from in our vocabulary? Holy. Holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory. I don't give to anyone else to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Not proclaiming our glory, not complaining, uh, proclaiming man's glory, not your sense of who you think you are. This is about God, and the angels are proclaiming about who God is in his character, in his attributes, his holiness, that God is just and he is jealous for us. He is loving and merciful. He is filled with grace. He is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent God in his goodness to us sent his son Jesus Christ so that we could have eternal life and all of that God displays and the Bible here says he does it everywhere the whole earth is filled with his glory and why don't I think they were very passive in what they were doing here look at verse 14 verse 4 and the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The foundation of Isaiah's life shook when he saw the vision. And the foundation of our life should be shaken when we take hold of the glory of God. 
Now, here's the interesting thing. Isaiah didn't understand half of what we understand. He didn't have the whole picture. He's going to write later on in the book about the fact that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and that you will call his name Emmanuel and and his name will be Wonderful, Counselor, a Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And later on, he would write, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, he didn't understand what you understand. That was all about Jesus. He knew a Messiah was coming. He knew he was called to be a prophet, but he didn't have all of the pieces. We have all of the pieces, and we, God's people, should be crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts when we think about our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he's done and what he's accomplished in John 17, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said this, I glorified you on earth, he's saying to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand, the majesty on high. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Holy, holy, holy is my savior, Jesus Christ. The one who surrendered, gave up, stepped aside and took upon the form of a man so that he could come. The one who came and died in my place. The one who is risen. The one who now sits at the right hand of God making intercession for me. That should shake us up. That should shake us to the core as to who God is and what he has done for us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's the great exchange. The great exchange of what Jesus Christ did for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Well, the next thing we want to see is when you see the glory of God, you must be broken by his glory. You must be broken by his glory. My life verse is found in Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The focus is back on the Lord. And so what happened to Isaiah when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, when he hears the angels, when the foundations are shaking? Look at verse five. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. When when he sees God for who he is, when you see Jesus for who he is, you come to the woe is me. You fall apart. You got got nothing. Who, Who am I to stand before God? I got nothing. And that's what happens in his life. He, he falls apart, as it were. Woe is me. I'm undone. 
But wasn't enough that in the vision he saw the seraphs flying by and giving honor to the Lord and serving with delight. But then he sees the Lord and he realized how undeserving he is, how pathetic he is. And he cries out, woe is me. As poorly as he compared to the seraphim, that was nothing in relation to how he compared to the Lord found himself in deep depravity, brokenness. God does that all through scripture. He, he did it with um, Job. He did it with Daniel. He does it with Peter. He does it with John in the book of Revelation. And he does it with us. When we see who God is, we, we cry out, woe is me. When you see the glory of God, you immediately see your sin. You immediately see your sin. Woe is me, he says, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Happened to David. Remember when he sinned with Bathsheba and then eventually Uriah is put to death and he goes and he meets with Nathan and Nathan tells him a story and David's all indignant about it and, and Nathan says, you're the man. And David goes out and he cries and weeps in his sin. And in Psalm 51 and verse four, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David doesn't say against Bathsheba, have I sinned? He doesn't say against Uriah, have I sinned? He doesn't say against my family, have I sinned? Although those things were true. He says, God, against you and you only have I sinned? So often when I'm talking with people, when I try and justify things in my own heart, I just try and bring it down to the horizontal because as long as I can get it to the horizontal, then I don't have to really own it. I can blame other people. I go, everybody's doing it, all the rest of it. The husband who cheats against his wife, he totally sins against her. But until he understands that he sinned against God, He's never really going to get to a place of restoration and reconciliation. And the person who cheats in their business, you know, it's just business. No, against you and you only have I sinned. You take the eyes off of the Lord as it relates to his holiness and your accountability and your sin, you can justify just about anything. But he cries out, against you and you only have I sinned. You know, in the whole area of coveting, and there's so much more we could talk about this morning, but coveting is wanting wrong things. They're not yours. They're not for you. And people covet all the time. We looked at this in Exodus 20. You don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't cover his ox. Don't cover his, don't covet any of his stuff. Coveting is wanting what's not yours. It's not right for us. It's wrong for us to be involved in porn. It's not ours. It's not for us to have. But we covet it. No, we want it. What about cheating? I mean cheating sexually. I mean cheating in your business dealings. Or what about when you want power or glory or control and you're going after wrong things. They're not yours. But you live in a world and the world says, no, no, it's okay. Everybody's doing it. Against you and you only have I sinned, God says. 
Get your eyes out of you. I can meet that bar level and get your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Wrong things, writing, wanting right things for the wrong reasons. It could be a bigger house or a car or clothing or wealth and nothing wrong with having those things, but do you want them for the right reasons? Maybe you want right things, but it's not the right time. Maybe you want right things, but you want the wrong amounts of those things. When Isaiah saw the Lord, said, woe is me. Oh my God, what have I done? The things I want, the way I live. You are in heaven, you are on the throne, you are awesome. And I turn my back on you so often. It brought him to the place of seeing his sin. Brought him to the place of understanding the need for repentance, a turning, a, a change of his mind. And that whole idea of repentance is one we always need to drive back to in the church because we need to remember. We hear the story and we understand the word to repent means to turn. It means literally to turn. And, uh, but here's the struggle. Whatever your struggle is in your life, you're like, yeah, I'm going this way and I know I'm not supposed to do that. I'm not, I'm not supposed to cheat in my business dealings. I'm, I'm not supposed to feel that way about my possessions. I'm not supposed to cheat on my wife. I'm not supposed to look at pornography. And, and your pastor has said, if you struggle with pornography, take your computer, take it out to the driveway and drive over it with your car. The problem with that, that's only helpful until you buy a new computer because you never changed your mind about that thing. Until you change your mind about these things, you're never going to have victory over whatever the thing is in your life that you struggle with. And so you go this way, I'm not supposed to do this, I'm not supposed to do this, I'm not supposed to do this, and you turn this way, I feel better, I feel better, but I haven't changed my mind. And so a week later, or a month later, or two months later, or a year later, you're back going over the same cliff, why? Because you didn't change your mind, you saw the thing, and it was like, well, if I do this, it will hurt Sue, or if I do this, it'll hurt my business partner, or if I do this, it'll hurt my, no, no, if you do this, it hurts. God. Change your mind. That's how we come to repentance. That's how we get marriages right in our church. That's how we get our relationships restored when we come to a place of repentance by changing our mind. The change of mind brings us to a place of great reconciliation. I put away my stubbornness. I put away my pride. I put away my willfulness. I put away my sense of independence. I turn and I'm restored. I love what it says in the text. It says in verses six and seven, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. In God's amazing reconciliation, God's amazing restoration, God's amazing forgiveness is, is there for us when we come to him, see who he is, and cry out in our sin. I like the way the word says it here. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, having taken his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. The altar was where the sacrifice was made. And the sacrifice was made. The spotless lamb was put on the altar and the sacrifice was made. And, and then this coal is taken. And see, he didn't understand what you understand. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice. 
and the coal that's taken was because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and it comes and it's a picture of something that would be very painful. Lips are very sensitive. And this burning coal up against his lips, he doesn't talk about any pain, he doesn't talk about that. Just that he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is paid for, covered, done. It's taken away. Once Isaiah had met the Lord and been convicted of his sins, he was cleansed from his guilt. And then, and then he was ready to serve God. Broken by his glory brings us to the place of serving. It brings us to the place where you must respond to God's glory. You must respond to God's glory. This is not a halfway kind of thing. When God shows himself to you, when you see the Lord, you get right with him from in your sin and then, and then we respond. Look at the response that's in verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. Okay, editorial note. Notice that Isaiah goes from this place of, I'm a mess, I am undone. There's nothing I can do about it. And God, you've done all of this. And now God calls and Isaiah serves. You think you're on the bench. You think you're out of the game because of sin in your life. You take a look at this text. Right after his sin is dealt with, it's what's next? Who's gonna serve? How are you gonna serve? How are you going to serve? You deal with your sin and God forgives your sin. It's gone as far as the east is from the west. Now it's time to step up and start to serve, to get involved and be, and nobody is on the bench. There may be things you don't do. There may be areas you don't serve, but you're not on the bench. You can be used by God and used for his glory. And God does that in Isaiah's life. But you have to respond to his glory. And I have to tell you, my concern in giving you, even giving you this point in the message is this. Is that your response will be, okay, so good Christians do the thing that he just said. That's what good Christians do. The pastor said we need to do this, therefore we need to do this. The response that I have is because that's what the church expects of me. No. I respond because of the glory because of who God is, because of what God has done. Don't respond because I want you to do something. Don't respond because your wife wants you to do something. Don't respond because some worker of the church has said, we need you to step up and help. When you respond like that, you're good till the first trial comes and then you bail. We respond because of who God is and we respond out of his glory and God's glory forces us to respond. But it's so interesting how God does it. He says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? How strange is it that God asks a question at all? Why would God ask questions? What does God wonder about? God's sitting in heaven going, oh, I wonder how that's gonna work out. God wonders about nothing. He knows everything. So what is it that God wonders about? Nothing. What questions would he have? Like, who's gonna go for me? <laughs> like he doesn't know. What does God not know? He knows everything. But he brings it to you in a question. 
He brings it to you in a question. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, then I said, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. God was asking for a person. God wants willing, surrendered servants. We shouldn't be waiting for people to come and go, can you help? Will you do? We should be surrendered. We might need to go find out what it is, but we should be surrendered people. Lord, what is it you want me to do? Here I am. Here I am, Lord, send me wherever it is you want me to go. Whatever it is you want me to do, that's what I want to be about. Here I am. Send me. God's looking for volunteers. And Isaiah steps up and he says, here I am, God, whatever you want. Now you can go and read the rest of Isaiah or actually verses 9 to 13 will help you to understand what God asks him to do is a big deal and it's not going to be easy. And people, as they rejected him and the prophets in the Old Testament, as they rejected the followers of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, as they rejected Jesus Christ himself, as they will reject you. That's what's going to happen. But God says, in light of my glory, in light of who I am, who will go for me? Who will go for me? He says, here I am, God. When I saw how you were, when I understood how messed up I was, here I am. It's a great picture of our salvation. It's a great picture of our salvation. When we see who God is and when it brings us on our face before him, understanding how woeful and pathetic and sinful we are and we can't fix this problem and God heals us and he forgives us, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we're gonna, as I said, next Friday, we're gonna spend the time in here and we're gonna go through the text in John and, and then we're gonna be, but why? But why? Why did he come? Why was that so important? And on Sunday, we're going to see the resurrection and hear the story and we're going to answer the question, but why? But why? Jesus Christ came so you could have life and you could have it abundantly. Jesus Christ came so that you could have salvation. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. God loved the world so much, he gave his son he was the sacrifice. The coal that came to give Isaiah the deliverance from his sin is the, is the result of the work of Jesus Christ. And our salvation comes not by my works, not by my efforts, not by what I do, not by my family, not by the church I attend. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus, the Bible says, and you'll be saved. If you're here today, don't try and perform for God. You can't. You can't. His standard is perfection. His standard is so far beyond your puny little efforts. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, the Bible says. If you've never done that, you can do that today. Speak to us before you leave here. Don't leave this place without knowing the Savior. Some other words I want you to think about when you think about, here am I, send me. Here's one, surrender. I'm gonna give up my rights, God. I'm gonna surrender my rights. Because it's about you, it's about what you want. And I'm gonna come under because you're awesome. Because you're a part, because you are God, because you care for me, because you forgave my sin, because it's all atoned for in Jesus Christ. I'll surrender. So even as I'm saying that, what's that thing that's churning in your heart? What's that? Yeah, not that, not giving that up. 
Not giving that up. Well, get your eyes on the Lord. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. You want what you want because you want what you want. It's called selfishness. It's called pride. And, and God's going to break you of it. But you can come willingly seeing the Lord and surrender. Here's another word, worship. I'll respond to God in his glory in worship. Taking time to focus on who he is and what he's done. I will worship him. I will worship him corporately. I will worship him personally. I will worship him with my head. I will worship him with my heart. Here's another one, obedience. In your quiet time, time to hide God's word in your heart. Why? So you won't sin against him. Some of you, you close your Bible when you leave here and you don't open it again until you get back here. And you wonder why, God, there's no joy in your life and why there's no fulfillment in your life. And God's like, are you kidding me? Your word have I hid in my heart that I won't sin against you. Spending time in prayer before the Lord, crying out to him when Isaiah saw the Lord. The first recorded words in Isaiah of his actual words about something are these words. Woe is me. Woe is me. He cried out to God in prayer. And prayer is hard work and we need to be faithful to it. Here's another one in the area of, um, of obedience in our lives. How about uh, being baptized? How about being baptized? You say, well, that's kind of a thing you just kind of picked out of thin air, didn't you? Well, we've got a baptismal service next Sunday. And if you're in the room and you've trusted Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized, why not? Why not? Well, I'm nervous. Well, I don't know if I'm good enough. Well, that guy could drown me in that tank. The year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on his throne, lifted up. And I cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And your crazy little puny little excuses as to why you won't obey God speaks to what you think about God. And you can get baptized next week on, on Resurrection Sunday. What an amazing picture. Dead, buried, risen. Again, speak to Daniel. Speak to Daniel Meyer. We would love to have you join us as part of that. Obedience in your first fruits of your time and your talents and your treasures. What are you holding back from the Lord? Obedience in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with boldness. Not because it's the right thing to do, the church says, because it's all about who God is and what he's done. And then we must respond to his glory and service. Who will go? As they said, I'll go. I'll go to the widow or the orphan or the person who's hard to love. I'll, I'll go in the special needs community. I'll, I'll go to people. I'll serve in our church. God, I'll do whatever it is. I'll do whatever. Not because some worker wants me to do it. Not because the pastor ranted and raved about it. But because, God, this is what you would have me to do. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Well, so what? So what? When Isaiah saw the glory of God... It changed everything. When he saw the glory of God, it changed everything. Isaiah wanted to be the answer to God's question, who will go for us? He wanted to be the answer. He didn't want to be the problem anymore. His sin is dealt with and God's going, who will go? And he's going, I'm going, I'm going. 
What's God calling you to in this message? What's he calling you to maybe in repentance or turning or getting something right? And God, I'll go. I'll do whatever you want because of who you are and what you have done for me. What created that heart for Isaiah? Well, he saw the Lord. When he saw the Lord, it changed everything. When he saw the Lord, he saw his own sinfulness. When he saw the Lord, he realized the need of the nations. When he, he saw the Lord and he was touched by God's cleansing fire, when he saw the Lord, he said, oh God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm going to get right with you. I'm going to be right with you and I'll do whatever you want me to do. When Isaiah saw the Lord, it changed everything. He was broken by God's glory. Are you? Are you broken by God's glory today? When you think about what God has done and how far you have fallen, are you broken by his glory? And are you ready to serve in whatever God calls you to? Today we're going to have an invitation in church. We've had it in the other services and people have been across the front here on their knees before the Lord because it's like, oh my goodness, I've been so selfish, I've been so self-centered, or I've been focused on other people and my focus hasn't been on the Lord and today I'm getting my focus back where it belongs. I'm putting my focus on the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple and I'm going to get before God and I'm going to get on my face and I'm going to cry out to him and he'll forgive me and he will work. We will work forward striving for his glory in everything that I do. Are you ready to respond to that? I hope you are because we're going to give you an opportunity to come and get on your knees at the front. But first we're going to pray. Father, this is your word. It's a passage you've been, you've been working me over for some time now. And I know, Lord, how far I have to go. But I thank you that you're a God who loves me and compassionately works me over, moves me forward. And slowly, step by step in my struggle, yielding to you and to your glory. And Lord, that's true in my life. It's, it's true of a bunch of people in this room. Today, we need to get on our faces before you. There's no no um, safer a place to do that in this room right now. So God, would you work in your people? Pride will step in. Oh, I don't need to do that. People don't need to know that I'm... God, you already know our hearts. What do, what do we care what other people think about us in these things? This is before you, Lord, and so we, we want to come. We want to come and bow before you the King of kings, the Lord of lords, people of God who are broken by the glory of God to be used in the service of God. Do your work in this place, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.